I set out on narrow way many years ago, hoping I would find true love along the broken road. But I got lost a time or two, wiped my brow and kept pushing through. I couldn't see down every sign, pointed straight to you. Every long lost dream led me to where you are. Others who broke my heart, and they were like northern stars, pointing me on my way into your loving arms. This much I know is true. That God. Bless the broken road that led me straight to you. Yes, it did. I think about the years I spent just passing through. I'd like to have the time I lost. And give it back to you. But you just smiled and took my hand. You've been there, you understand. It's all part of a grander plan that is coming true. Every long lost dream led me to where you are. Others who broke my heart, and they were like golden stars. I know is true That God blessed the broken road Led me straight to I know is true That God blessed the broken road That led me straight to you Yes, it did That God blessed the broken road That led me straight to Thanks, uh, Rick, for saving me there. I can't chew gum and sing at the same time, I found out. Thanks for taking the slide there. That's what all the laughing was at the beginning of that song. 
I got I to practice that. I'll, I'll, I'll do a little bit on that on uh, Saturday morning or something, Saturday before the, the wedding. That's a cool song. I like that song. It's, you know, it's pretty cool. I wonder if it's a big hit. But anyways, um, all right, should be good evening, first of all. And uh, could you turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, of course. Go to Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Romans 15, 14. And um, we're going to, uh, as I said before, uh, continue our study of the book of Romans. We're going to do, I think last night I said that we're going to be uh, finishing off verse 16 this evening. I was wrong (laughs) because there's three different thoughts in this passage, so it's going to take three nights. We're going to do, uh, well, because we have the Lord's Supper in the uh, Day of the Lord series on Sunday, we'll finish off verse 16 on Tuesday. But what we're going to do is we're going to study the second statement. That's in Romans fifteen sixteen, And uh, Paul teaches us that he served the gospel of God as a priest so that the Gentiles would cause themselves to be an acceptable offering. That will be our subject here uh, this evening. And um, as I've been pointing out as we, in the last couple of weeks, you know, we're winding our way down uh, with this uh, study of the book of Romans and then we're going to go back to the Old Testament and do the book of Jonah. And, um, and I also mentioned last night before we get underway, I like to once in a while throw these things out there. But um, last night I talked about, uh, before class, I talked about exegesis and that it's uh, basically, you know, bringing out what the original text says and bringing out what the passage says, has to say. Like when I go into my study, you know, I'm going back to the original languages, I'm studying the historical context, I'm looking at the languages, the words, the syntax, the grammar of the passage to find out what the meaning of it is, and then the Holy Spirit gives us illumination as to, once we've come to that, determine what it says, the Holy Spirit illuminates us as to uh, the, uh, the spiritual application, the spiritual understanding of the passage, what the Holy Spirit said through the original author. And it's very important, you know, when we talk about exegesis, um, you know, we often think of it, you know, pastors often talk about it, and I have in the past as well, but I never really thought about it this way, uh, until I've been reading this book uh, by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And, uh, you know, exegesis is something that you guys can do as well. You might not be able to go to the original languages, but you have great translations out there. I've been mentioning them. The Net, the Net Bible is a great one. The e- English Standard Version is very good. The New Revised Standard Version. The New American Standard Updated Version. Those last two are basically literal and NIV is a dynamic equivalence translation. You should have several different uh, translations. And the modern ones today are very good, and they're getting better. <clears throat> but uh, and they're getting better with their notes too. But uh, you can do exegesis as well. And one of the things that I think it's very important, and I've been bringing this out throughout the years I've been here, is that we always have to pay attention to context. And uh, you know, when we we don't pay attention to the, the historical background of a passage and don't understand it. Or we don't look at the uh, passage in its context, meaning the words that come before, the sentences that come before and after the sentence that you're working on. It's very important that we pay attention to that. And one of the reasons, why, you know, one of the things that has happened is uh, throughout the centuries is that cults have come about because of bad interpretation of the scriptures. Like, for instance, um, you know, uh, in the Appalachian Mountains, there's there's all these uh, guys that, you know, they, they handle the snakes. I think they're Pentecostal in background. I'm not sure. But they handle the snakes because they, they basically take Matthew 16, 
uh, I think it's verse 19, you know, that they will pick up snakes and everything. The problem with that is in, in the, the, the best manuscripts that we have, that's not even an original language, that, that passage. It's cut off at Mark 16, 7. That right there it stops the, is the book of Mark. And now here are these people, they don't understand textual criticism or anything like that. And so they have these, all these guys dying rattlesnake bites or whatever they do. And uh, to, just to show that the Holy Spirit's with them and stuff. So that's bad exegesis. You know, they're not studying the Bible properly. And, and you know, we're, uh, here's another one. Um, you ever hear that? Uh, and I was taught this. And it's wrong because I, I did a lot of study on it. And I, I don't understand where it came from. Now, now I found out somebody... I've been reading some stuff and, and I found out where it came from. But you ever hear the the idol, uh, the, the needle's eye? Uh, like you know, Jesus said, it's it's more difficult for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God. You know, well, you know, I was always taught that it's this place in Jerusalem where it's called the needle's eye, and the camels would pass through it. That's not even historically correct. I, I was shocked when I was looking. I was like. Nowhere are you going to find in, in, in among the Jews in their writings or historic, historically or archaeologically, there's no evidence whatsoever historically for that. And actually it is talking about a needle's eye. And the whole point is, is that it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and it's impossible for a rich man to go through the, into the kingdom of heaven based upon his own riches. That can't get him into heaven. It's impossible. That's Jesus' whole point. It's impossible. But it's possible for... And then he said, but all things are possible for God. Nothing is impossible for God, he says it. And that means God can do the impossible. He can save a rich man if he turns to faith in Christ. The whole... You know, so the, the, so bad exegesis... Now, I figured... I tried to figure out, where did it come from? Because I was taught this. I said, well, where did they get this from? Okay. Well, it turns out that it, it come, uh, he, they might have, the people I learned it from might have learned it from another Bible teacher because it was a common interpretation that went back, we know historically, to a, a guy in the, it was a, a, in the medieval times in the 11th century who came up with this because he had a hard time with this text. It's difficult for a rich man, to, it's impossible for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle and enter the kingdom of heaven as it is a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. So you hear, you know, so he had a hard time with the text. And so he came up with this thing that it must have been someplace in Jerusalem. No, it's not historically accurate. So it's very important that we pay attention to the, the historical background. And that's why I say to you, when you study the Bible, and if you notice on my emails, and I bring it up from time to time, I try to tell you about certain books. But you should always have a concordance. I know, Sharon, you got a concordance. And basically, a concordance is, you know, if you get a New American Standard, you go, to, you know, every Bible has one. But uh, you have a concordance, and they'll go through the different, like, love. And they'll go through the word, and they'll tell you what the Greek word is, the Hebrew word is, in every place that it appears in the Bible. And that's good, because you can do, you know, how, use, do word studies. But uh, another thing is, you should, if you talk about history, you should get a good Bible dictionary. And one of the best out there is Ung, uh, the New Unger's Bible Dictionary. It's very good scholastically. You should have several ones because you don't want to just go based upon what one guy says. Uh, you have to go have multiple sources and they have to agree. And you, or you have, to have, you have to have enough historical evidence. I can't stand up here and say, uh, say this is true when I don't have any historical evidence for the fact that what I'm teaching. So therefore I won't say anything if I don't have any historical evidence for a particular subject. So... You should have a, a Bible dictionary, New Angus Bible dictionary, um, with, with these other ones I have out, out here I can tell you about. But you should, you should have a, a good Bible dictionary. Oh, yeah, here, here's some. Well, let's see. Um, oh, here's a, here's a good one. The New Manners and Customs of the Bible. 
that's a good book. It talks about his, the, the historical background in which the Bible is, is found. Harper's Bible Dictionary is good. Um, Holman's Illustrated Bible Dictionary is very good. Uh, where's another one? There's another one I'm looking for here. And uh, let's see. Yeah. The New Bible Dictionary 3rd Edition. The New Bible Dictionary 3rd Edition is another good one to have. And you can get these at CBD on sale. A lot of times they get deals. And every library, you don't have to be a pastor, but you, if you're going to be a serious student of the Word of God, there's no getting around it. You're all going to get involved in exegesis. So you, you need to understand, you can, you know, as far as literary context, you can do that without any, anybody helping you. But when it comes to historical things, even a pastor, because, you know, uh, we have to rely on people who are authorities on certain subjects that we are not authority on. No pastor is an authority on any one particular subject except the exegesis of the passage. But there are a lot of people who can... Ha- that's why you have all these different tools that a pastor has and scholars have where other guys have worked on these things and men have worked and women have worked on these things and we benefit from their work. See, when you interpret the Bible, no pastor and no Christian lives in a vacuum. We need each other. So there's certain guys in Christianity, like uh, Dan Wallace. He's very good, he's excellent, or Bart Erdman. They're very great with textual criticism, how we get the original autographs. They're good, you know, but they, you know they're, and then there are other guys that are very good, like Gordon Fee and Douglas Moo with exegesis. They're very good, Douglas Stewart. They're very good at, in, in technical matters of exegesis. So everybody is not a master, you know, not everybody masters all the different areas of Bible study. You have to rely on each other, and that's why we're members of the body of Christ. Now, another thing I wanted to bring up, and I, and I had a conversation with, uh, with Titus. We were at Titus and uh, Jody. We went to uh, dinner last night after class, and, and uh, thank you, Titus, for, for dinner and Jody. And uh, we were talking about Titus and I were talking about uh, uh, the, the, in the tribulation period um, that there's two witnesses we studied in the Day of the Lord series. They're, they're unnamed. We don't know who they are. And, you know, Titus was asking, you know, do you think it's, you know, do you think it's uh, uh, Moses and Elijah? And, and I was always taught that it was Moses and Elijah. And, uh, but I don't believe that anymore, I told them. And the reason why I said that is if you look at Revelation 11, does it name them? And therefore... Um, but, you know, uh, he brought up the point, and it's common uh, knowledge, but Matthew 17, it mentions in the Mountain Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there. So a lot of guys have come to the conclusion that, and I used to be taught this, that that means that this, this probably is a good, that's good evidence that, and there's other things connected to it, but that's good evidence that it might be those two unnamed witnesses in, in Revelation 11 that the Antichrist kills, and then they come back to life again, God raises them from the dead, that they must be Moses and Elijah. Or there's some that say that one of them is Enoch. And Elijah never died, you know. So, and so what I said to, to Titus is, well, it doesn't name the guys. And the danger, and the danger you have, this is what you have to pay attention to hermeneutical principles. It, 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 this passage is talking about the tribulation period. The passage in Matthew was a different context, different book. And if that, if that Matthew passage was talking about the tribulation period, you'd have a good point that it's Moses and Elijah. But the transfiguration passage in Matthew 17 doesn't, it has nothing to do with the tribulation period. So, and there's nothing in the book of Revelation in the context of that passage in Matthew, of Revelation 11 that says the names of these guys. So I said, I don't, I don't believe that, they, I don't know their names. I have no idea. It doesn't say that. And, and I said that, 
uh, when, if we say that, um, that it's Moses and Elijah or Moses and Enoch, you're arguing from silence. Because, and I say that because the passage in its context doesn't mention them. It's, it's silent about their names. So there's a danger of, you have to be very careful. It's not like it's a big issue of what, who Moses, if it was Moses and Elijah we were talking about, it was like, it doesn't really change anything. It's whether we know who they are or not. But the point I'm making is that, you know, we, it's very, it's a discipline. When you study the Bible, you have to be an active uh, reader. You have to ask questions. When I go and study the Bible, I ask questions. And you could do it too. When you look at your translations, you've got to say, well, what is this passage saying? What is the reader saying? And then you come to the application. And one of the dangers that go, that's, there's this new thing of interpretation, because there's always some new crazy thing out there. And the new thing is, is that the reader is the one who determines what the text means. That's wrong. You start and you find out what the author meant. You find out what the passage says for itself, and then you see how it applies to you. Because if you start with you and what it means to you, you're in, involved in eisegesis, is what we call it, meaning you're imposing your ideas on the text. And that text was written centuries ago, in the first century. And here we are in the 21st century, and we have a different, we live in a different um, time period where technolo- things are changed technology-wise. Uh, the world that we live in is much different than the first century world. So we, get, we have to start with what the author said. Exegesis is basically a detailed, careful study of what the original text says and what the text says, and for me it would be the original languages, you would be an English translation, and you t- find out what the text says. And then, you know, the, um, the, the, the danger is you, you always have to start with what the, what the, what the text says. I, I, uh, and then you can go to talk about application. Let me, I brought this up in Romans 14. Now, Romans 14, he, Paul talks about dietary regulations. We don't have that issues right now in our church or a lot of churches in America. What you know, food, what you eat is not an issue among Christians or observance of the Sabbath or abstaining from certain wine that is offered in pagan rituals. That's not an issue in our day and age, in the 21st century. But we have to find out what that said, what Paul was dealing with, before we can find out how it applies to us. And as I told you, the way Paul uh, deal uh, told the strong believers. And to deal with the weak believers is that they were to operate in love. That was the point that Paul was trying to uh, present to his readers. But we needed to find out the context in which he wrote that in the first century, the issues that he was dealing with as as an apostle in the first century, and the racial issues that we don't have a problem in our day and age. But we, they did in the first century. So once we know what he, what he said and what he wrote, because the Holy Spirit said something 2,000 years ago there through Paul, and we need to find out what that is, and then we can see how it applies to us. If you do it backwards and put the cart before the horse, you're going to get in big trouble, and you're not going to interpret the Bible correctly. I mentioned a person, a, a woman who, who, who came to me, and uh, I think she had an axe to grind with, any, with me anyways because... You know, I didn't. Uh, you know, I didn't kiss. I didn't kiss her behind. Like you know, a lot of guy, a lot of women like guys to uh, to bow to them because they have a, a, an authority issue. And I was not one to do that with her. Maybe she didn't like me for that reason or, or whatever. But she thought, you know, hats. You had to wear hats because some guys teach that in First Corinthians eleven, uh, you know, a woman should have a covering for her head. 
Well, it says in verse 15 of that chapter that her long hair is a covering. It's a symbol that she's under the authority of the man, that she's following the divine order. And women who, in the first century, who cut their hair really short, like a butch haircut we call, that was a, that was an outward uh, symbol that you were a lesbian. So Paul wanted to make sure that there was an order between the sexes. So I said to the woman, and she was telling me, well, you know, Holy Spirit's telling me that I should wear a hat. I have this conviction. And I said, well, you know, okay, you can wear the hat. You can do whatever you want, but let me try to explain to you that she didn't want to hear it. Well, see, when you have wrong interpretation of the passage, the Holy Spirit's not uh, talking to you, okay? You have to have a correct interpretation, and then we can talk about the Holy Spirit, what he's saying. Because the Holy Spirit is not telling that woman to wear a hat. He's not saying that in the passage. But if you have a bad interpretation, you learned a bad interpretation, you know, you're going to get in trouble. So I bring these things up, and the reason why I bring these up for class is because I'm trying to, you know, as I go along, as I'm teaching you the passage, I'm trying to teach you how to study the Bible for yourself, too. But uh, you should always get stuff to read. I, I think a really good book you should get, I think it's called uh, How to, uh, it's by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And it's great, it's easy read for you guys. It's not too involved. But it, it, it's uh, by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. I think it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Great, great book. And there are a lot of books like that out there, but I would recommend that book. And, uh, but it's very important. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I don't want to put that much kind of work into my Bible study. You know, they, they say, well, I want to read devotionally. Now, uh, that's good. I, I read devotionally too. And, uh, but however... If you really want to get the most out of your devotional study, there's also another aspect of Bible study. And that means understanding and putting the work into understanding the meaning of a text. And then when you learn how to study your Bible properly and pay attention to context and the historical background and ask questions of the text, what does it mean? What's the point here? Who is he talking to? What will happen is that will help your devotional study by leaps and bounds. Trust me, because my devotional study is excellent. Like if I read it, like for a devotional study, for me, it would be like reading a Chuck Swindoll book. It's light reading to me. And I'm not knocking it. It's great stuff. He writes, for what he does, he does, it, it's really good. So I, if I want to have a nice, relaxed devotional study or read my own Bible, you know, like a, a translation, I will do that. But I, my, my devotional study is increased. It's, 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 uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it, it helps my devotional study immeasurably. If I have this other aspect of study where I'm an active participant in understanding what the text says. So, and, and a lot of Christians, you're, you're in the, you're in the uh, very minor, big minority now, a little minority now, compared, because we don't, we're, in our country, you know, a lot of people say they're for Jesus, and I don't doubt them that they're born again and saved, but they have no idea. They're so illiterate of their Bible, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's really bad. And it's basic stuff. You know, basic stuff that the people should know and they don't know. And so, therefore, you're going to be susceptible for cults and all kinds of stuff out there. So, you know, uh, be, be very um, serious about your Bible studies. You know, a disciple of Jesus, a disciple is someone who was very, followed the teaching and tried to, it was a student, a diligent student of what the teacher was teaching. So, if we want to be a, a, a methates, a, a Bible, a student of Jesus, we, uh, and, which, and we do that through the study of, his, of the word, his mind and thinking, you know, we got to be diligent. we got to pay attention. we got to rightly divide the word of truth. So, and it's, uh, it take, you know, the more you do it, 
the better you'll get at it. But if you never try to practice it, you never try to, to do it, you're never going to get good at it. And uh, that's why I always, you know, you know, I try to bring out in the study in Romans and anything I do, I try to, I think I'm getting better at it, but, you know, I try to, you know, ask you guys questions. I try to give my explanations on certain things, uh, you know, that are important to understanding the passage and why I believe, why I believe, why I interpret, why I interpret it. And, you know, that's very important because I think it, it, it helps us to understand the text. That's what we're here for is to learn and be educated in, in the Word of God and get it, grow in a knowledge of Jesus Christ. So uh, that uh, I just want to throw that out there. And let's, take a, let's get uh, underway with a moment of silent prayer. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, another day to learn the Bible, the completed canon of Scripture. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us to, uh, gives us illumination as to the text. And we just thank you, Father, so much for, uh, for gracing us out and giving us another day on this earth. We thank you for everything that you've given us logistically that we, so that we can enjoy creation. We thank you for the bodies that you've given us the souls you've given us and the uh, mental capacity to understand the word and the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to understand the word. We thank you, Father, for the fact that we, we're uh, living in this part of history and that uh, we're in the greatest dispensation of history, the church age, and in particular this part of the church age and this part of human history where we have the completed canon of Scripture, Father. We know, of course, from history that even people in the first century didn't have every, all the Bible like we have it today have it today in the 21st century. And we just thank you for all the, the Bible scholars and all the men and women who are serious about the Word of God and the original languages and that are helping us pastors and to get an understanding of the text and to communicate the truth to your people. We just thank you, Father, for all of them. And we thank you for their diligence. And we just thank you for all the different technologies now that we have that that helps to facilitate Bible study, and we just thank you for these people that are involved in these programs and putting them out. We just thank you so much, Father, for each and every one of them. And we just thank you for this exciting time that you put us in, and we know that we could go home at any time with the rapture, and we know we could die at any time with our physical death. So we just thank you, Father, that uh, you've given us a, a confidence in this life, that we're go- we are blessed, have been blessed, and will be blessed in the future. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he is uh, doing for us through the Spirit, in and through us as individuals and as a church, as a local assembly. We thank you so much, Father, for the people that you've raised up in this ministry that have been so uh, dedicated and devoted and to the study of the Word. We thank you, Father, for 
uh, each and every one of them that are taking part in this ministry, that are giving you their time, talent, and treasure and praying for this ministry. We thank you for the Tituses and the Jodies, Thompsons and uh, Rick and Sharon Brown. And we thank you, Father, for uh, our deacons and Dale, Steve, and, and Doug and their families and individuals uh, in the, uh, around this ministry that are doing so many things to uh, make sure that we have this ministry. We thank you for each and every one of them and, and John and Alex with publications, the people on Pal Talk that, and the people on the Internet the web, hitting the website that are that are been uh, following the teaching along. We thank you, Father, for uh, Carol Ann and uh, Mike and also uh, Alice and all the other individuals, George, that are following along and Lamp. We thank you for each and every one of them that they're faithful to the Word of God. And we just thank you for each and every one of them. We pray that you would continue to add to our number and uh, continue to uh, bring in individuals who are serious students of the Word of God. And we just pray for those in our ministry that are, are haven't made that uh, commitment and to become serious students of the Word of God and put it into practice. We pray that you show them their need for the Word of God. And we just pray, Father, that you do whatever it takes, bring in whatever adversity or prosperity that is needed in their lives so that they might see their need for the Word of God as believers, their spiritual food. We pray for this evening and this study of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 15, verse 16, Father that you would bless the study, that you would help those in the audience to concentrate, to pay uh, strict attention to what the Spirit will be saying to us this evening, to the communication of the Word of God. Help the communicator to deliver your full counsel to your people with accuracy, clarity, reverence, respect, and power, so that you and your Son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified and lifted up, and your people would be edified spiritually. We pray for these things in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now, last evening we began a study of Romans 15, 16. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul reveals to the Christians in Rome that the Father gave him the spiritual gift of apostleship for the purpose of being a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, this evening we're going to complete our study of this verse by noting that Paul served the gospel of God like a priest in order that his Gentile Christian readers in Rome would cause themselves, as we'll see this evening to be acceptable, an acceptable offering to the Father. Now, the, what he, Paul is saying, you know, remember his comments here in verse 16, he's trying to explain why he wrote what he wrote in the main argument of the epistle, which was contained in Romans 1.16, all the way to Romans 15.13. It was his presentation of the gospel to the Roman believers whom he never had met, and he had planned to visit them as he went on his way to Spain. And uh, we see that he is explaining why he wrote boldly in the main argument of the epistle. It was because of the grace that God gave, it, gave to him, the gift of apostleship. He identifies this gift of apostleship as grace, and meaning he didn't earn it or deserve it. And so he was being humbled there, but he is saying, I had a responsibility because that's my gift, is to communicate the gospel to people, and in particular, you Gentiles. Remember as we saw last evening, and then also in Romans 11, in chapter 1 of this book, that he was an apostle sent to the Gentiles. That didn't mean the other apostles didn't go to the Gentiles. They did. Peter, James, and John all ended up uh, going to the Gentiles after the Jews rejected the gospel and then were destroyed in 70 AD. The, the nation was in the temple, was destroyed with the uh, invasion by the Roman armies into Judea, led by Titus and Vespasian. Uh, and so we see that uh, uh, Paul, though, he was, and we'll see it further developed in chapter 15, 
he was sent specifically out to the Gentile regions of the Roman Empire, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, as we'll see, and in those, in those Roman provinces, he went out and he proclaimed, church planted. He would, he would proclaim the gospel in different cities, and he would, those churches would be planted. He'd spend a little time with them, and then he would leave guys like Timothy or Titus or Epaphroditus or Tychicus, guys like that, to uh, uh, help them along until they had pastors that could teach them, and they would t- train up pastors. But he would go plant a church and move on. He just tried to get the gospel into regions where it was never communicated. So he was. So basically, what he's saying to the Roman Christians, he's saying that I'm, I'm communicating the gospel to you because that's my gift, and that's I'm sent to the Gentiles to give them the gospel. As we saw last evening, and we've seen it many times in the past, when Christians hear the gospel, they think it's only directed to the unsaved. Well, the gospel means good news and it, victorious proclamation, and it's used in the scriptures. For when it's directed many times at the believer as well. And this epistle, uh, remember Paul gives his presentation of the gospel in the main argument of, the, of this epistle, the Roman epistle, and he was speaking to who? Believers. Gentile and Jewish believers. And this Paul's statements here, in verse 16 and then in 17, and later on, it indicates that the church was primarily Gentile in its composition. And there was more, it was by, by based upon his statements here. Because he's saying, I, I, this, is, I, this is what I do. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. Remember, his comments in verse 16 are explain, verse 15 are explaining why he wrote boldly in the main argument of the epistle. Uh, and we know one reason was so as to remind them. So this is what we, we're seeing and we're going to continue to develop as we go further into Romans 15, 16, and the rest of the chapter. So, again, this evening, we're going to complete our study of this verse. Uh, actually, we're not going to complete our study of this verse. What we're actually going to do is we're going to continue our study of this uh, particular verse this evening. And uh, we're going to do that because we're going to finish out the verse on Tuesday. We're going to finish out the verse on Tuesday by noting the phrase, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sunday, we got our Day of the Lord series, which is going to be a really interesting class. And uh, so this evening, we're going to continue with our study of Romans 15, 16, by noting that Paul served the gospel of God like a priest in order that his Gentile Christian readers in Rome would cause themselves to be acceptable, an acceptable offering to the Father. Now, look at Romans 15, 14. We'll pick it up there in context. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. As we saw with the word pitho there in the perfect tense, it was Paul's firm personal conviction that the Roman Christians were characterized as being full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now the question could be put forth by them, then why did you write so boldly in the main argument of the epistle, giving us prohibitions and commands? When we haven't even met you. Well, he says in verse 15 why. But I have written very boldly to you. Being boldly meaning I commanded, make, issued commands and issued prohibitions. And the main argument of the epistle. Why did he do that? I wrote to you very boldly on some points. Here's the reason. So as to remind you again. Which implies they were taught these things. They were taught these things. It's not hyperbole. He's not exaggerating. He's not flattering them. He's not blowing spoke at them. He had reports about these people. He sends greetings to people in Rome in chapter 16, as we've seen, and will continue to see, who obviously gave him reports. In fact, Priscilla and Aquila 
were tent makers like Paul were. And they were Jews like Paul were. And they were good friends with Paul. And they were corresponding evidently with the Apostle Paul. Because why else would he make these comments when he never met these people? Obviously the inference is, is that they were giving him reports. So he's, he's saying, I'm reminding you, which implies again that they were taught these things. Which, and that means that the things we read in this epistle, which Paul, remember Paul, Peter, at the end of his life, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he said some of the things that Paul has written are difficult to understand. Now this is the Apostle Peter. Well, we've read in Romans 6, uh, chapter, the book of Romans, there were some things that Paul taught that were difficult to understand. Well, that means that we just have to put a lot of effort into understanding them, right? Right, which we try to do. So the Roman believers he's saying here, by way of implication, when he's saying, I'm reminding you, they knew these things in this Roman epistle. That, that, would, mean, that would mean that most churches in America would be put to shame, in churches around the world, because these guys knew these things. And Paul was convinced, had the firm conviction, that they were doing these things. So that would put a lot of churches to shame and a lot of uh, churches around the world to, sh- to put to shame. Because it evidently means that they were good students and they had great pastors. Who the pastors are? Not important according to the Holy Spirit right here. The important thing is that he wanted, the Holy Spirit wants us to know about these people. Why? Because it's something we should be. We should, as a congregation, aspire to be great Bible students like the Roman believers were. So he goes on, he says in verse 15, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace, the apostleship, that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he says, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you my translation of the uh, of these two verses, fifteen and sixteen, on the board. Actually, I'll, look, I'll give you the translation, my translation of all three verses on the board, and just follow along with me. It says in verse fourteen, my translation. Now, concerning all of you, as a corporate unit, my spiritual brothers and sisters, I myself, in fact, am of the firm conviction that you yourselves indeed are characterized by being full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, being able also to instruct one another. However, I previously wrote for the benefit of each and every one of you without exception, rather boldly in part, so that I would at the present time remind each and every one of you without exception because of this spiritual gift which was assigned to me for the benefit of myself and others by God the Father. For the express purpose, verse 16, that I myself would be a servant owned by Christ who is Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. I serve as a priest the gospel originating from God the Father in order that my offering, namely the Gentiles, would cause themselves to be acceptable by being sanctified by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's my translation of that verse on the board. Now let's look at your Bibles. Let's break this down. He says in verse 16 in your your English translations, we're working off the New American Standard uh, text, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, or as I put it, as I rendered it, for the express purpose of being a servant, a public servant of Christ, who is, uh, of Christ Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. Then he says, ministering as a priest 
the gospel of God. Ministering as a priest is a verb. It's in, it's in the participle form. And it's the word yaru arayero. And that word we mentioned last evening, it means to serve as a priest. Now, mind you, he's not talking about being a Levitical priest because Levitical priesthood is not in the church age. And he's not talking about the church age believers' royal priesthood, though we all are royal priesthood, all royal priests, but he's not mentioning that there. He's saying, I'm serving as a priest. The word's not saying, I am a priest. I'm serving as a priest. He's trying to use... Um, a descriptive language for his readers, he's trying to portray himself as offering the Gentile believers, like his readers, to God the Father as an acceptable offering, and they would accept, present themselves as an acceptable offering by applying what he taught in, in his gospel that's put in the, in the main argument of this epistle. And when they do that, they would experience their sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's trying to give descriptive language here. He's trying to portray himself as a, a priest going before God with an offering. So he's not saying, I am a priest, though it is true that Paul and all church-age believers are royal priests, but that's not what he's talking about in context here. That's not what he's talking about here. He's simply using descriptive language. So this word, Yaru Arieto, it means to serve as a priest. It's used here with Paul as its subject and the gospel as its object, indicating that Paul is describing the discharge of his duties, his, as his sacred duties, as an apostle and communicating the gospel to the Gentiles. So the idea of sacrifice is contained in the word as indicated by uh, the word that, he, that, that comes later, pros, uh, prosphora. Now this word... This word, uh, 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 prosphora, that word means offering. So when, when Paul's saying uh, in the verse, if you could look at your passage, ministering as a priest, the gospel of God, uh, ministering as a priest, that word, yaru at yaro, it is, uh, it's talking about an idea of sacrifice. And we know that because the word offering in your text is a word that connotes sacrifice. So he's, he's talking about his ministry, he's communicating the gospel, to the Gentile readers in Rome as a, as a sacrifice, as ministering as a priest for God. So this is what we got going on here. And this word, it pictures Paul as a priest. It's descriptive language. It pictures Paul as a priest. And the gospel is the means by which he offers his acceptable sacrifice to the Father, which is regenerate Gentiles. So this is what... now. Uh, we can make a little bit of an, uh, an analogy or an application. Though pastors aren't apostles like Paul and aren't specifically apostles of the Gentiles. However, a pastor's congregation, he is, when he's communicating the word of God to them, faithfully and systematically, what he's doing is he wants his congregation to be an acceptable offering to God because the information he's giving them, communicating the word of truth, is that's the way they're going to be able to experience their sanctification by applying what he taught. And this is the idea that Paul's talking here. He's saying, the God, I'm re I wrote to you in the main argument of the epistle to remind you, and that's what I do, that's my gift, my responsibility as an apostle of the Gentiles, and I, for the express purpose, God made me a, 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 a servant of Christ Jesus, and I'm, I'm trying to, and I'm serving God at like a priest does in Old Testament Israel, like they do, and you're my offering. 
and you you can be acceptable you could you're going to be an acceptable offering to my father and your father when you apply what I taught you in the Roman epistle in this main argument of this epistle you will cause yourself to be acceptable to God when you apply what I teach that's what he's saying here in the passage now the word gospel evangelion ev angelion Evangelion, excuse me. Evangelion means gospel. It actually, if you look at the word, its etymology, it means good news or even uh, victorious proclamation. And I mentioned this in the past. This word evangelion, it was used by the Greeks and the Romans when there was a great victory on the battlefield. If one of the Roman emperors, uh, like Caesar, won in Gaul, there'd be a runner and he would give a victorious proclamation and they would would, uh, sound it out in the city of Rome that... You know, Caesar had accomplished a great victory in Gaul. And so that was a, that was a victorious proclamation, Evangelion. And that's exactly what this word's conveying. But the Christians took it and they elevated it. And Jesus used the term. He elevated it because he's talking about a spiritual victory that God, Jesus Christ has given us. A victory over sin, Satan and his cosmic system. A victory that is ours now and it's good news that we have this victory. For the unbeliever, when this word's used in relation to the unbeliever, it talks about the the victorious proclamation or the good news to the unbeliever that you can receive the forgiveness of sins and be declared justified by God through faith alone and Christ alone. And for the believer, and that's what Paul's talking about in this context, it's the good news that you've been delivered. You have that deliverance from sin, Satan, and cosmic system in his cosmic system, it's yours now. And if you appropriate by faith what I taught you in this epistle, obey it, you can experience that deliverance now in time. Experience your salvation, experience your sanctification, and those are two sides. Experiencing sanctification and salvation are two sides of the same coin. Fellowship with God. So this word, evangelion, translated the gospel, uh, it, 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 it literally means good news. It's used here, though, in our passage in relation to the believers in Rome because the word is used in the context of Paul explaining why he wrote boldly to the Roman believers and the main argument of the epistle. He explains in verses 15 and 16 that he wrote boldly on some points in the argument so as to remind them because of the spiritual gift of apostleship which he received from the Father in order that he would be a servant of Christ Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. Then he goes on to describe to the Roman Christians the function of his spiritual gift and communicating the gospel to the Roman Christians in writing as serving like a priest the gospel of God. And as we'll see later on, as we go into the evening, it's for the purpose that his offering of the Gentiles would be acceptable to the Father by being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, this word gospel here in Romans 15, 16 refers to the gospel in relation to believers since in context, he's explaining why he wrote boldly to the Roman Christians and the main argument of the epistle. Furthermore, he wrote boldly to the Roman Christians because it was his function and responsibility to do so as an apostle to the Gentiles. And by operating in his gift, by writing boldly to them in this epistle, he served like a priest the gospel of God in order that his offering of the Gentiles would be acceptable to the Father again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, only believers are sanctified by the Holy Spirit and never and never unbelievers. Therefore, this word, evangelion, gospel, in Romans 15, 16, 
is the good news or God's victorious proclamation regarding the Gentile Christ, Roman Gentile Christians' deliverance and victory positionally from the power of Satan, the old sin nature, and the cosmic system of Satan. So don't cookie-cut words. For instance, when you see the word faith or believe, it's not always used in relation to the unsaved. It could be used in relation to the believer. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's talking about the Christian. The righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, quoting Habakkuk 2.4. A righteous person is someone who's saved. He has the righteousness of God. He lives by faith. So you've got to pay attention to context. Is what I mentioned earlier. Don't cookie-cut words. And another word that people like to cookie-cut is salvation. When the word salvation is used or saved... It might be talking about the Christian experiencing his deliverance, which salvation means. It's not always used in relation to the unbeliever or being uh, having faith in Christ to be delivered from the lake of fire and receiving the forgiveness of your sins and being declared justified by God. You've got to watch the context. And what? who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the Roman believers. They're believers. They're saved. He wrote to them boldly. In the, he's explaining why he wrote boldly to them. So when he's using the term gospel here and explaining why he communicated boldly to them, he's talking about it in the context of believers. So therefore, this word gospel here is used in relation to believers. So very important we see that because if you, it, you know, it, we want to know, we want to be accurate and we always strive to be accurate. Maybe, hey, there are going to be times that we're not going to be, we're going to be wrong. And that's a part of learning. And nobody has it all. Nobody has all information. Even the Bible teacher that you greatly admire and respect, nobody has it all. We're all learning. We're all students. Humility says, I don't know something. Humility, but arrogance says, oh, I know this. You know, there's some people, I bet you there's some people that will not study the book of Romans along with me because, oh, they heard, they, they, oh, I heard this before. You never heard me teach it. I mean, I don't care if you listen to me or not. But the, the, the point I'm making is, is oh, we're always learning. We're, oh, nobody has it all. You don't have it all. I don't have it all. And I'll tell you right now, I, I, after I finish studying Romans, and I, if I live another 10 years or 15 years on this earth, I'll look back at this study and go, boy, I know more now than I ever did back, than I did back then. That's a part of growth. Pastors grow. Nobody has it all. And neither do you. So you, we, we all, and I, and I bring this up because, you know, when I say don't cookie-cut words, you can either react and say, oh, you know, because you're guilty of it. You can say, okay, I'm not listening to this guy because I've been just shown that I've been wrong. Well, well, you know, it's, you want to stay wrong or you want to get better? You know, when I, like for instance, when I mispronounce a Greek word or a Hebrew word, okay, it ticks me off because I try to take, I, you know, want to pronounce, have the right pronunciation or anything. Or a name, I try to be conscientious about that. But if I screw up, okay, what do I do? I just stop trying to get better? You're always striving for excellence. You're always trying to get better. And hopefully, if I live another 10 or 15 years or 20 years, I hope I'm a better pastor and I'm a better Christian than I am now. So it's, it, the, the, we need to look at, when we look at, the, when we look at this passage, we've got to pay attention to the context and the word gospel is used of believers here. Now, look at verse 16 again. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. God there is referring to the Father. How do we know that? 
Well, in the original language, there's an article in front of it. In English, the word an article is the. Now, the article has many functions in Greek. And here, the articular construction is often used in the New Testament when it's used with this word theos, when the article's before it, it often, unless the context says otherwise, it's usually referring to God the Father. And we also know it's referring to God the Father because the articular construction of the word is anaphoric. That means the article saying that this word I'm standing before, God, was used in the previous verse. And it's retaining its same meaning in this verse. So here, in the Greek, you can't see it in your Bibles, but the, the, the article is anaphoric as well. And it means that the word theos, God here in Romans 15, 16, was used in Romans 15, 15. And we're there referred to the Father as we saw. And its meaning here, the article indicates in verse 16 before the word theos, it indicates that that meaning and referent, the Father, is being used here again in verse 16. So we know it's God the Father. So now, now we know it's God the Father, it's functioning grammatically as a genitive of source. That, mean, that indicates, it's very important, it indicates that the gospel that Paul communicated to the Romans and the main argument of the epistle originated from the Father and not Paul or any human being. That's why I say that a pastor, the minute he deviates from the text, he's lost the authority and it's not coming, the word of God, it's not, it's not coming from God anymore, it's coming from him. That's why I don't, I don't give my political views. My job is to give my analysis of the text, what it, my interpretation is, my exegesis of it, exposition of it, communicate to you what God has told me after an exhaustive study. And so once I do that, I give it off to you. And then it's coming from God. So Paul's saying that this gospel I have, that I wrote to you in the epistle, didn't come from me, it came from God. I, he's saying, I didn't it didn't originate with me, it's something that is, comes from God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, if it is, if what we read in the main argument of the epistle comes from the Holy Spirit, and we know it does, and originally, ultimately, it comes from the Father. The Father used the Spirit to communicate it to us. But we see that if we know that, we need to pay attention to what it says. So when you hear the, this epistle study, I know there were people that... The bitch didn't complain. It was too difficult at times. Well, you know what? That's what they said in the first century about Paul. I'm just telling you what he wrote. And I'm trying to give you the, the application, the meaning of it. So uh, we need to, if that comes from God, we need to respect that. We need to have reverence for that. All scripture is God-breathed. Some things you're going to like and some things you're not going to like. Give you an example. When, you were, when I was a little kid, I hate squash. I still don't like squash. I like summer squash, but I don't like the squishy squash. You know what I'm talking about. And there are certain foods I didn't like when I was a kid. I never liked broccoli. I love broccoli now. I love broccoli and cheese, okay? I never liked asparagus when I was a kid. I love asparagus now. I never liked, um, uh, what's that, spinach. Oh, I hate spinach. And you know what? I still hate spinach today, unless it's on pizza. Yeah. I still hate it today. Now, vegetables and stuff like that, the greens I just mentioned, are very important to grow up physically and for, to maintain a good bodily health. And the same way, the word of God, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There are some things that you hear in the word of God that are difficult. They're like asparagus. 
when you're a kid, or they're like spinach to me. They're hard to digest. Now, what do we used to do as kids? We draw, you know, I'm not going to give it to the dog, <laughs> you know. They're like, you know, try to get it, you know, sneak it around my mother so that they can't see. You know, when she turned her back, <laughs> throw it in the, you know, away. Well, that's what some Christians do with the Word of God. They pick and choose what they want to listen to. That's what we saw on the other night, 2 Timothy 4. Paul warned that in the last days, which we're in, by the way, that people would accumulate teachers for themselves to tickle their ears. They want their ears tickled. They don't have the, they don't have the discipline to listen to what the Word of God has to say. They want to pick and choose what they want to say. And that's wrong. That's, that's, that's being arrogant. Because if, the whole, you know, because if we don't apply what Paul learned in this epistle, then you know, we're, we're arrogant. We're rejecting what God has to say to us. God is speaking to us. And we need to recognize that. That's why when I teach the Word of God, I, res- I expect people to respect what I'm doing up here. Now, you might not like me personally, but that's not the issue. I'm teaching the Word of God, and I get the gift to pass the teacher, and I'm going to teach the Word of God, and when the Word of God's taught, I expect people to be, behave and to show that all the respect in the world, they should have respect for me personally because of what I do and what I teach. And that's important because a proper respect and reverence for the Word of God it is the first step. That's humility. That's the first step to learning and to understanding and then to bring glory to God. But if we are humble, uh, not humble and arrogant and we won't listen to certain messages because the title looks, you know, that looks like it's too difficult. That doesn't interest me. You know, uh, Jody was telling me on the website. <laughs> this too, Jody. I, I saw it. It's funny that you, you mentioned it the other night at dinner. On our website, what is the most, what is the biggest uh, downloaded article we have on our website? It's like over 1,100 hits. The Adultery of David and Bathsheba. <laughs> Sex sells, right? Even in the Word of God, it sells. And yet, there are some things in Romans I did. You know, there's maybe like a couple of hits on, uh, you know, certain, like audio, like in Romans 9. There's like, you know, there's not a lot of hits. There's like 10, you know. But, but because the subject is too difficult, they pick and choose. Well, you're never going to learn. If you always just, if you never get challenged, you're never going to get educated. You're never going to grow if you never stretch yourself. You know, you never stretch yourself. That's wrong way to be. It's a wrong way to be. Now let's look at the purpose clause and then we'll wrap this up. Look at verse 16, Romans 15, 16. He says, To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God or the gospel that originates from God the Father. And then here's the purpose clause. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, uh, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So that is the conjunction ina, which is employed with a subjunctive moon of, uh, mood of the word uh, yinoma, and that is translated would become, and it Together, the subjunctive mood of this verb and the conjunction ina form a purpose clause. It indicates to us that Paul's purpose in communicating the gospel to the, to the Gentile believers, such as those among his readers. My offering of the Gentiles, that's a couple of words. We have the word prosphora, translated my offering. And then the articulate genitive form of the noun ethnos, translated Gentiles. We've seen this quite a bit. Now, this word prosphora means offering, and it refers to the state of the Gentile Roman Christians continuing to experience their salvation and sanctification and thus fellowship with God 
by being obedient to Paul's teaching in the main argument of the Roman epistle. It refers to the state of the Gentile Roman Christians continuing to experience their sanctification and growing up to be like Christ by responding to Paul's teaching in the main argument of the epistle. I say continuing, if you notice my words, I I choose them carefully. I say continuing because Paul's statements in Romans 1.8, Romans 15.14 and 15, and Romans 16.19 all indicate that his Gentile Christian readers in Rome were already characterized as doing everything he commanded and prohibited in the main argument of the epistle. Evidently, as I've been trying to bring out, the inference here is, and the implication is, their pastors were already teaching the things Paul taught and the Romans, the Roman believers, were obedient to it. Then we have this word, may become, yinoma. Yinoma, uh, yinoma means to possess certain characteristics with the implication of their having been acquired. Now, in our passage, this word is used with Paul's Gentile Christian readers in Rome as its subject, and it speaks of their possessing the characteristic of being acceptable to the Father as a result of Paul's teaching in the main argument. The cause now, the word's in the causative middle. Look at the passage. It says, To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable may become, the word there talks about possessing a certain characteristic that is, that, with the implication that it's been, ex, it's been acquired. It's something they didn't possess. Now, it says, it's in the middle voice. It's a causative middle. And it's very important because it talks about the volitional responsibility of the Roman believers. And for us, our responsibility to apply what Paul taught us in the main argument of the epistle. The causative middle of this word, yinoma, it, uh, it indicates that by communicating the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul served the gospel of God like a priest in order that they, who are the Gentiles, who are Paul's offering to the Father, would cause themselves to be acceptable to the Father. If you look at my translation on the board, I bring this out in the translation. Look at verse 16 on the board. For the express purpose that I myself would be a servant owned by Christ who is Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles, I serve as a priest the gospel originating from God the Father in order that my offering, namely the Gentiles, would cause themselves to be acceptable by being sanctified by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. So that means application. The causative middle means that Roman believers have to apply, or as we see in the, in the context of the epistle, they had to continue to apply what he taught them in Romans and the main argument of, the, of this Roman epistle. And what are we are supposed to do? Apply. Apply what we learn in the book of Romans. What good is it if we don't apply it? You might as well throw your Bible away because if you're not going to apply, uh, apply it, then what good is it? Because the whole point of the word of God, as we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's for our instruction. It trains us in righteousness so we can bring glory to God, so we can serve the body of Christ, so we can serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so we can serve the Father. We have a responsibility. It's not let go, let God. Spirit's not going to actively do anything in you if you're not doing anything about your Christian way of life, if you're not putting effort into it. It says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mental thinking. And love your neighbor as yourself. But the love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind. Mental. It's up here in the head. And with all your strength, applying it. This is what we need to do. He, so Paul's telling us, the Holy Spirit's telling us in the 21st century, 
that we need to apply what we've learned in this Roman epistle. We need to cause ourselves to be acceptable to the Father. If you don't apply, the implication is if you don't apply it, you won't be acceptable to the Father. So how many Christians don't even know what's in the main argument of the Roman epistle? How many, how many don't know positional truth? Or what it is? You should know it. Very important. You're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. It's one of the main doctrines of Paul's writings of the church age. Is that positional truth. You're identified with Christ in those things, and those events. And we're to appropriate that by faith. What about the 14 affirmations of the Holy Spirit we studied in Romans chapter 8? What about the things that we learn in chapter 12 about operating in spiritual gift, about presenting your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to the Father? All those things we should know, we should do. We're, we're resp- held responsible. We need, the Paul's saying, you, uh, the, the Gentile believers in Rome need to cause themselves to be acceptable to the Father. He gave the, the gospel in writing. Their pastors had taught it. He was simply reminding them and they needed to continue to, 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 continue to apply what they've been taught so that they can cause themselves to be acceptable to the Father. And that is by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through the teaching of the Word of God. That's why it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that they're sanctified. sanctified. Acceptable, that's the word, ephrosthectos. Ephrosthectos, it's used here to describe the attitude and contact, conduct of Paul's Gentile Christian readers as being acceptable to the Father. Paul's Gentile Christian readers' attitude and conduct would be acceptable to the Father because this attitude and conduct was sanctified by the Holy Spirit, meaning that as a result of obeying Paul's Spirit-inspired teaching and the main argument of this epistle, his readers would experience their sanctification. What is sanctification? You should know it. I've taught it since the day I got out here. You're set apart exclusively to do God's will. Not to do your own thing is the implication, but to do what he wants. You have been set like a vessel that's been set apart to serve God and to do his will and to be about the Lord's business, not your own stupid business. I know you have responsibilities. People have responsibilities. And I know you guys are, you know what I'm talking about in the chapter. I'm speaking, I'm preaching to the choir here. But there are people in our ministry and listen on the internet that it's like, I fit my, I fit my Bible study around my stuff. No, you fit your, your life around the word of God. That's how it works, people. And if you think otherwise, you're dreaming. You're kidding yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You're here to be his chosen vessel. You should be about his business. And when your business gets in the way of his business, it's time to say, I need to make changes. It's time to say, I'm screwed up here. There's too many Christians walking around and they're wondering why they get nothing out of their relationship with God because they don't put anything into it. They put more effort into watching the Celtics, who are probably going to crush the Lakers in this series, by the way, they put more effort in watching sports or leisure or television than they do their own relationship with God. They put more emphasis on those things in their, in their, in their jobs and their businesses and there's nothing wrong with that. But it comes to the point where you have no time for the word of God and no time for serving. You've got wrong priorities. You've got wrong priorities. Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So this is what we see here in Romans 15, 16. Paul's Gentile Christian readers' attitude and conduct would be acceptable to the Father because this attitude and conduct 
was sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Meaning that as a result of obeying Paul's Spirit-inspired teaching in the main argument of the epistle, his readers would experience their sanctification. So to summarize in our, what we learned here this evening, in Romans 15, 16, the second major thought in the passage, he, Paul says he served the gospel of God like a priest in order that his Gentile Christian readers in Rome would cause themselves to be an acceptable offering to the Father. And we'll pick this up on this study of this verse, finish it off on next Tuesday, unless the rapture happens or the Lord takes me out. And uh, we're going to uh, continue Sunday, our Day of the Lord series. And uh, I mentioned it briefly before, but we're going to go into it. It's a great, um, there's a lot of discussion among Bible scholars about the millennial sacrifices and the significance of them. And uh, so it's caused a lot of controversy what they between dispensationalists and covenant theologians and whatnot. So we're going to study the meaning and the purpose of those sacrifices during the millennial reign and what they're for. And, uh, and that they're involved in the worship of Jesus Christ and God the Father during the millennial reign of Christ. And we're going to talk about how King David's going to lead Israel in a resurrection body. He's going to offer these sacrifices. And, as we'll, and I'll tell you why he's offering a sacrifice even in a resurrection body to the Father. It's not for ceremonial purity, but it's for something else. And we'll talk about that. So we're going to talk about the temple that's going to be, that's going to dwarf all the other temples in history. And uh, we'll have uh, charts and uh, stuff on, on the temple on Sunday. So it should be an interesting class. And we're winding down our Day of the Lord series. And I think after we finish that, I think uh, it's probably going to do a study on, on the person of Jesus Christ because I think it's very important that we understand the hypostatic union, and how the two natures of Christ relate. So let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for those here in the chapel and those on the internet listening. And we just pray, Father, that this message would touch their hearts and convict them and strengthen them and encourage them and instruct them in righteousness and inspire them to be further uh, study, uh, diligent study in the scriptures so that they draw closer to you and become more and more pleasing to you and more obedient to you and draw closer and more intimate worship and fellowship of you, Father. We also pray, Father, that you would, uh, for those in the chapel, give traveling mercies to these individuals in the chapel. And also, Father, we pray that the fellowship would be empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit after Bible class. So in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.